Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, so this morning we're going to be studying the last lesson in the yearly series going through Ephesians chapter 4. Um, and just something very brief as an introduction with this lesson. Ephesians 4 starts with talking about uh, how we're urged to walk worthy of our calling by all that God has done. And something that's just very important, I think, to remember about the idea of being called is in God's word, a calling is not something that is self-defined or that we invent ourselves or just try to figure out without any real tangible guidance. Um, The calling in God's word is something that God has specifically outlined. It's something that he has called us to in his word. And it's motivated on the basis of all his work of mercy and love that he's lavished on us. It's motivated by the glory of who God is. It's motivated by the fellowship he's given us, by, given us with one another. And so in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, this has kind of been the central theme verse for the year. And the lesson is really going to be a summary of the command here at the beginning of the chapter. So Paul said, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. So we're going to be looking at the last verse of the chapter. Really, I think these last commands in chapter 4, verse 32, really summarize the same things that were being said in the first three verses. So I'll go ahead and read this again in verse 32. And so this lesson is just going to be uh, very simple and just practically based in these three instructions. So it says, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. So these are really simple instructions. But... Although they're very simple, very fundamental, these are very challenging, very deep, and very profound instructions. I think when we take the last part of the verse into account, that it's not just that we're being kind, just based on maybe how our personality might lead us to be kind or how the world might define kindness. Really what we're trying to do is we are trying to imitate God's example of kindness. And really what we're trying to do is we're trying to discover, well, how is God kind? Or how has God shown me kindness? And then how can I imitate that example of kindness that is in God? So we're going to start with the instruction to be kind. And just on that note, I want to I look for this specific application in Luke chapter 6. And so if you want to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 6, um, we're just going to explore the instructions that Jesus gives here. And I want to notice after reading these verses how Jesus speaks very similarly to what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4 about what he said about forgiveness, that we're forgiving just as we've been forgiven by God in Christ. Jesus says something very similar about kindness in this section. Luke chapter 6, verse 27 through 36. So And again, the point of this is on the board. Jesus both teaches and he demonstrates true godly kindness. Verse 27 of Luke chapter 6. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Whoever hits you on the cheek, offer him the other also. 
And whoever takes away your coat, do not withhold your shirt from him either. Give to everyone who asks of you. And whoever takes away what is yours, do not demand it back. Treat others the same way you want them to treat you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. If you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners in order to receive back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High, for he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. Jesus restates something very similar in verse 40, just a little bit ahead. He says, A pupil is not above his teacher, but everyone, after he has been fully trained, will be like his teacher. So again, the goal of why we're looking at this is not just to think about how we can be kind in some general sense, but how can we imitate the kindness of God? How can we become more like our teacher and master in following these instructions? First thing to notice that I'm not going to have on the board Kindness is essential to life. I think you see that in verse 35. Um, do you remember in the Sermon on the Mount? So this, this lesson is very similar to the Sermon on the Mount. But when Jesus is saying the same kinds of things in the Sermon on the Mount, he talks about how God sends the rain on the just and the unjust. He causes his son to rise on both the evil and the good. And that is an act of God's kindness. And so God's kindness is essential for our lives. We need kindness to live. Now, the unique thing about God's kindness, first of all, godly kindness is not motivated by greed or lust. Um, this might sound gross, but the kindness of the world is motivated by lust. And maybe a different way to think about that is desire without God or desire that's motivated by selfish gain is lust. You remember in Ephesians 4, when we read in the scripture reading the beginning part of that, that the world in their ignorance and in the hardness of their heart have given themselves over to the practice of all kinds of wickedness and uncleanness by the motivation of greed. How often is it that somebody is kind? Really, their motive in their kindness is because they want to get something in return, right? And if that's not necessarily apparent, how kind are you motivated to be to somebody who's not being kind to you in return for your kindness? Or when somebody is abusive to you or slanderous to you or just really cruel to you and unkind in return to your kindness? What does that do to your motivation to be kind to them? But God's kindness doesn't work that way like verse 35 and really the rest of the section. We know that God's kindness is genuine and we know that his kindness is sincere because when God is mistreated in return for his kindness, God does not lose his motivation or his willingness to extend kindness to the unworthy, to the ungrateful, and the evil. God has no terms and conditions for his kindness. Romans chapter 2 words it in a similar way. Um, in Romans chapter 2, it's appealing to a sinner, and it says, Do you not know that the kindness of God leads you to repentance, right? So God's kindness is not motivated by selfishness, greed, or lust. There's no terms and conditions to kindness. So the more we become like Jesus, 
the more we become kind in that same way, where our kindness is not based on a give and return or in a justice that if I'm kind to you, now you owe me kindness in return, but that we just simply love because of God's example, being genuinely helpful to others. So the next point about this, God's kindness gives generously to others while hoping for nothing in return. Uh, If you look back at verse 35, but love your enemies and do good and land expecting nothing in return. Uh, If you're using a New King James translation, it's worded hoping for nothing in return. I like that a little bit more just in terms of how that connects with me a little bit more than expecting nothing. Because the idea to me of, of hoping for nothing is you, that's what you're actually putting your hope in. That you're, it's not just that you have no expectation, but you have proactively decided, I'm really hoping that this person will do nothing in, in return for what I'm doing for them, right? So godly kindness, it gives generously without expecting or hoping for any return to be given uh, for what's done. It's generous without any terms or conditions. The other thing is, godly kindness is courteous without exceptions. So courteousness is the idea of meeting a need or just showing honor, showing respect to somebody. And the idea of godly kindness is godly kindness shows respect and consideration without any partiality. So you'll notice that starting in verse uh, 27. Love your enemies. The first part of Jesus' instructions is showing showing courteousness without the exception of it being somebody even who's your enemy. In verse 27 still, even those who hate you, doing good to them. Verse 28, what about those who curse you? What about those who mistreat you? What about those who hit you in the face? What about those who take away your coat? So in verse 32, what about those who don't love you? Even sinners are able to give to those who are going to give back to them. And so the kindness of the world, again, comes with terms and expectations that God's kindness doesn't come with. So in being kind as God is kind, we need to learn to show courteousness without any exception. And think about this as well. In verse 35 again, in verse 36. How important is it to you that God's kindness shows you respect and honor and courteousness that God thinks about your needs even when you don't recognize that he's fulfilling those needs? How important is it to you that God is unbreakably consistent in his faithfulness to do those things? And think about this. How often is it that God is kind in painful ways? How God provides what somebody needs for their lives to be joyful and abundant? And he's given no recognition in return for that. Or how often does it happen that not only is God not recognized or thanked for what he gives, how often is it that somebody in return blasphemes God's name or even tries to encourage others to not believe in God or to consider it foolishness to even acknowledge God? How often does it happen that God is courteous and kind and not only is he overlooked, but he's reviled and blasphemed in return? Listen, a part of being kind as God is kind is recognizing how God has been kind to us and we've been ungrateful and evil. How God has been kind to us without exception. And the more we recognize and realize how much God is doing in that way, the more equipped we are to do that for others as well. And here's another quality of godly kindness. 
godly kindness will suffer wrongfully. So it's not just a matter of godly kindness might suffer wrongfully. By nature, that is just a guarantee of the kind of kindness that Jesus is commanding here. So think about verse 29. Getting hit on the cheek and then offering the other also. If somebody's taking your coat, not withholding your shirt from him either. So if somebody is willing to do that, it won't be very long before that person in whatever the environment they may be in, that they're considered a pushover. That it's obvious that they're not going to defend themselves, that they're not going to uh, try to get anything back for what's being taken away from them. It's very difficult in a world where people thrive through intimidation to be respected, to be honored, or to feel safe when that's the way that you're conducting yourself in the environment where you're hoping for people to treat you kindly. Do you think of an example in Jesus' life, by the way, where we see him show this kind of kindness? Where Jesus allowed people to slap him on his cheek? Where Jesus allowed people to take the clothes off of his back? Again, it's not just that Jesus is commanding things. It's just that Jesus is giving us a self-portrait of his character through command. And that the littleness of the struggle that we put forward in doing these things is the greatness of God's character in fulfilling these things. But it's not just that God's kindness suffers wrongfully. It's that godly kindness will not cause others to suffer wrongfully as well. We're going to get into this a little bit with being tender-hearted, but a lot of these qualities kind of blend together. But godly kindness, if if you recognize that you have caused somebody to suffer because of something that you've done or said, godly, godly kindness will be pierced to the heart over those things. Godly kindness, even looking forward, not just looking back, godly kindness shows great consideration for how things are going to be said, how things are going to be coming across, you know, the kind of person that you're going to be around and interacting with and thinking, how can I make sure that I am genuinely meeting the needs of this other person and showing respect to their preferences, right? And not having interactions be based on my will or my preferences, but rather on the will of others to please them. And finally, just one, one last quality of godly kindness. Godly kindness is quiet and listens. So this is an implication in the entire section, but especially in verse 35. I think it's meant to almost be like a drop-the-mic moment when Jesus reveals that God is kind to the ungrateful and evil. That should be obvious, right? But I think just seeing the degree that Jesus was willing to suffer on the cross in a similar way, just realizing that God is in power of all creation, that God is choosing to cause the sun to rise on the evil and the good, that God is choosing to send rain on the evil and the good, that God is proactively, constantly making a decision to sacrifice his will to care for the needs of the ungrateful and the unworthy. God's kindness is quiet. God's kindness is overlooked. And so if we're going to practice God's kindness as he is kind, then our kindness will be done in quietness. It means that our character will become more gentle and approachable. It means that our words won't be as harsh and abrasive, but that again, we're showing consideration for what we're saying, for how we're behaving ourselves, interacting with others. 
And God's kindness will be often overlooked and does not seek recognition as reward. God's kindness acts in servitude without expecting the reward of people to give their praise in return. But along with being quiet, godly kindness listens intently. I was talking to Eva about this um, a few days ago, but sometimes uh, you may have run into this as well, where you interact with maybe some people who are close to each other, and sometimes it almost seems like they're fighting with each other to talk over each other to make sure that one person gets hurt in the end. And what that tells me is there's a lack of listening that's involved in the communication. Where in order to be heard, I've got to talk over somebody or interrupt them. And if you're willing to be quiet and listen, you're not able to get a word in because it's a fight for who gets to get heard. Godly kindness does not work that way. Godly kindness it does not fight to be heard. Godly kindness is willing to be overlooked even in conversation and to wait patiently, right? And so God's kindness has a character that is willing to blend into the background, to do good, to be overlooked, and even to be mistreated, right? So let's talk for a moment about being uh, tender-hearted. I want to start with what this means. Go back to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. In verse 18, um, something that was referenced just a little bit earlier. If you look at the end of the verse, it mentions that before coming to Christ, the world is in a condition of being hard-hearted, having a calloused conscience. And I think in trying to think about what a tender heart is, it can be helpful just to think about what it's not. And a tender heart is obviously not a hardened heart. Um, A little while ago, there was a blacksmith that I saw whose hands were so calloused, he must have not worn gloves while doing his work. Um, His hands were so calloused, he could literally stick his hand into a fire without his hand being injured or even feeling pain. And not not, he couldn't like hold it in, you know, and keep it there. But in terms of if he just wanted to grab something really quick, he could literally put his hand into a furnace and then grab something and pull it out and let go and he wouldn't even be harmed. Because his hands had been so hardened by his work. And obviously he probably wasn't wearing gloves. Whereas like my skinny skeleton hands, like if I put my hands even a foot away from a fire, I'm going to feel that pain pretty quickly and not be able to push my hand any farther. So that's the thing about a tender heart, is a tender heart is easily convicted and easily moved. That blacksmith's hands did not feel pain when they should feel pain. And his hand wasn't motivated to be moved away from that pain because it was hardened and calloused, right? So a hardened heart won't be convicted when a tender heart will be convicted. And a hardened heart will not be moved to change when a tender heart will be pierced and be moved to make a change. And I think an example of this, if you think about David, I don't know if there's a better example to think of than somebody who God literally said had a heart like his. You remember that when God was calling David, he said, I have found a man after my own heart who will do all my will. Turn to 1 Samuel chapter 24. Uh, When I was thinking about what a tender heart looks like, this was the example that kept coming to my mind as I thought about this. But the idea of 1 Samuel 24 is David demonstrates qualities of a tender heart and the way that he interacts with Saul here. And I think since this is kind of in the middle of a longer narrative section, um, it can be helpful to kind of catch up on what's going on just very quickly. So 
We just talked about kindness. Saul has been extremely unkind toward David. Uh, Saul was told by God before David was anointed as a king, Saul had been told that God was going to choose another king to replace him because of his hardened heart. And in 1 Samuel chapter 17, God empowered David at that point to kill Goliath. And Saul began to look suspiciously at David because obviously David was a man of faith who is being exalted in the nation. But David never told Saul that he had been anointed as king. And in fact, David had been nothing but kind toward Saul. Just a couple of verses that I think can help summarize what's been going on. Look at 1 Samuel chapter 19, verse 10. So this is when David and Saul were together, and this is when things really started to escalate with David pursuing Saul's, or Saul pursuing David's life. 1 Samuel 19, verse 10, says, Saul tried to pin David to the wall with the spear, but he slipped away out of Saul's presence that he would so that he struck the spear into the wall and David fled and escaped that night. This is where David's world turns upside down. Imagine this shepherd boy where we just talked about how kindness is overlooked and fades into the background. When David's father had his brothers come to Samuel to be anointed, David wasn't even under consideration. And so this quiet young shepherd boy goes from being an absolute nobody overnight to becoming the celebrity of Israel with people literally singing songs of his praise, to then, very abrasively, Saul, who is his friend, who is meant to be a good king, tries to pin him to the wall with his spear. And then if you look in verse 11, Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him in order to put him to death in the morning. Turn to chapter 23 now. One significant thing that happens here is as David is on the run for his life, Um, David takes some showbread from the tabernacle, which is bread that was prepared specifically for the priests and their service and their work. Um, Saul goes to the priests and questions them about it. And in verse 19 of chapter 22, Saul killed the entire city of priests where David had gone. He not only kills the men who served as priests, but the women, the children, and the infants along with the ox and the donkeys and the sheep. So in chapter 23, David ends up finding out about this, and Saul continues to pursue his life. Look at verse 9. Now David knew that Saul was plotting evil against him, so he said to Abiathar the priest, this is the priest who fled from the city that David, or that Saul, rather, had slaughtered. He said, bring the ephod here. Then David said, O Lord God of Israel, your servant has heard for certain that Saul is seeking to come to Calah to destroy the city on my account. Will the men of Kyla surrender me into his hand? Will Saul come down just as your servant has heard? O Lord God of Israel, I pray, tell your servant. And the Lord said, he will come down. Then David said, will the men of Kyla surrender? Surrender me and my men into the hand of Saul? The Lord said, they will surrender you. So think about this again. David has done nothing wrong. He's been nothing but kind to Saul. And not only is Saul relentlessly pursuing his life, murdering the people who are assisting David, even out of ignorance, and even being priests of God. But then these people who he sought refuge with are going to abandon David into Saul's hands to be killed by him. So David continues to flee. And if you look at verse 15, now David became aware that Saul had come out to seek his life. Well, David was in the wilderness of Ziph at Horish. So the rest of chapter 23, Saul continuously keeps finding out where David is hiding, 
pursuing him to murder him, causing David to flee to another location where then Saul follows him again. And that leads us to chapter 24. I'm going to read chapter 24, verses 1 through 7. Now when Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told, saying, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men from all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the rocks of the wild goats. He came to the sheepfolds on the way where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the inner recesses of the cave. The men of David said to him, Behold, this is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I am about to give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it seems good to you. Then David arose and cut off the edge of Saul's robe secretly. It came about afterward that David's conscience bothered him because he had cut off the edge of Saul's robe. So he said to his men, Far be it from me because of the Lord, that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to stretch out my hand against him, since he is the Lord's anointed. David persuaded his men with these words and did not allow them to rise up against Saul. And Saul arose, left the cave, and went on his way. So how did David exhibit a tender heart in this situation? I think the primary thing is a tender heart practices the discipline of honestly reflecting and examining self. Having a tender heart is not going to mean that you're never going to sin or make a mistake or treat someone unkindly or say something you wish you wouldn't have said. But a tender heart honestly looks back and will honestly consider, was that really what God wanted me to do? Is that really what God wanted me to say? Was that really the kind thing for me to do or the courteous thing or the considerate thing for me to do or say? If you look at verse, um, looking at the wrong page, if you look at verse 5, it came about afterward that David's conscience bothered him. You know, one of the things that I admire about David is every time he sinned against God, either his own heart convicted him and he completely repented, or somebody confronted him about his sin. Think about Nathan the prophet with uh, Nathan, Nathan the prophet with um, oh, I'm forgetting her name, Bathsheba. Uh, Nathan the prophet with Bathsheba. That when Nathan convicted David, that David's heart was pierced and he completely humbled himself. And in all those instances, David exhibited a tender heart that God was able to work with. So there might be times where, again, in interacting with maybe your husband or your wife or your children, or maybe it's at work, and maybe in the hurry of work or things have been overwhelming at work and without thinking about it, you thoughtlessly do or say, say something that you recognize if you really weigh things out with God and his kindness, that just really was inappropriate. And it was really unwholesome. Or that was offensive to somebody, or that really shouldn't have been said at all. A tender heart practices honest self-reflection examination. And with that, there's some kind of measure for a tender heart. If you look at verse 6, David was not just thinking on his own terms about this. Again, this was not a self-invented condition. This wasn't just a heart that David had earned by personality. Notice in verse 6, David said to his men, far be it from me because of the Lord. 
that I should do this to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to stretch out my hand against him. And notice he restates this, because he is the Lord's anointed. There was a standard that David measured his actions against. If you think about the idea of weighing something on scales, that David recognized that the weight of what God has done with Saul by anointing him as a king, the value that Saul has to God because of this, it outweighs my judgment on the matter. And therefore, God's judgment wins. And so David honestly weighed his decision against the reality of God's judgment. He compared his decision with God's judgment. And he remembered what God had done. This is the value of meditating on God's word day and night and saturating our minds in God's word. Listen, if there is not evidence of a tender heart in your life, the issue in that may be that you are not meditating on God's word as you ought to be. Because not only was David a man after God's own heart, David was a man who wrote the Psalms that speak so much praise about the value of God's word, just like the song that we sang, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet. That comes from Psalm 119. And Psalm 19 similarly says uh, truths about God's word like that. So David saw the value of God's word because God's word was a lamp unto his feet and a light unto his way. David had direction with God's word. Not only direction with moving forward, but being able to see, looking back, where he needed to move and change position as he continued to serve God. So again, a tender heart, it weighs, it compares, and it remembers based on what God's word says. And then lastly, a tender heart is easily moved toward compassion. I think sometimes a tender heart will not only be exhibited when we've done something that we're convicted is wrong, but when we can show sympathy to people who are suffering or are burdened in ways that are outside of our own, uh, I don't know, outside of our own experiences. David had every reason to hold a bitter grudge against Saul here. Not only was Saul pursuing David to kill him, Saul was endangering the lives of David's closest friends. Saul was endangering the nation of Israel, and David well understood the glory that God had reserved for Israel, and Saul was undermining all the glory that God had reserved for the nation. As long as Saul was king, God's nation would suffer for it. And so not only was David and his men put at risk, the nation of Israel at large, but not only that, in chapter 22 again, an entire city of God's priests and their wives and their children and their babies were murdered by Saul unjustly. Do you think David could have justified murdering Saul in this moment? You know that Saul had just committed this incredible atrocity against the city of priests. Now here is the opportunity as God's servant of justice to execute his justice on Saul. And yet David in his tender heart was moved toward compassion for Saul. Think about Jesus when he suffered on the cross. When Peter was moved to violence and cut the servant of the high priest Eroth, in Matthew's gospel, Jesus stopped him and said, Do you not think that at this moment I could not call out to my father and that he would put at my disposal more than 10,000 legions of angels? And so Jesus knew that injustice 
He had the right to to strike those who were taking him captive. But Jesus had a heart more easily moved to compassion. And so instead of using violence against those being violent towards him, Jesus would later cry, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they are doing. So lastly, we're commanded also to be forgiving. If you go back to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32, um, we're going to spend the last part of the lesson, again, just thinking about some very simple, practical things with how we can be more forgiving. But in verse 32, although we're, I think, universally applying the principle of imitating God with these things, at the end of Ephesians 4.32, he specifically says, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. And I just want to focus on that first part of that language, not just as we are forgiven in Christ or are forgiven by Christ, but as God in Christ has forgiven us. I think the first question we should ask is, well, how has God forgiven us in Christ? For one, he paid the full price of our release from debt. The enormity of our debt went beyond what could be financially paid. There's no amount of money that anybody could put together, no amount of gold or resources that anybody could put together that could pay the price for even one lost soul in sin. And nothing is a higher price than the price of your only child. God was willing to pay a price that we could not even fathom would need to be paid for our sin. He paid the full price. And in kindness, he did it quietly. But he also, in paying that price, it's not just that he released us from debt by paying that price himself. He also pursued a reconciled and restored relationship. And I think any principle of godly forgiveness is really rooted in those two things. That for one... Forgiving others involves releasing them from debts, whether that be obviously a physical debt, but especially even an emotional debt or even a debt of feeling like I've been wronged in some way. But also not just that we're trying to release others from debts or complaints or grudges, but that we're also considering is the relationship reconciled and restored? Is there something that needs to be done or some conversation that needs to be initiated so that this relationship can be exactly what God wants it to be. And I think a good place to consider those things a little bit more is 1 Corinthians chapter 6. If you want to turn there in your Bibles. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And we'll just consider a few principles from 1 Corinthians 6 with some of the things that Paul says to the Corinthians here. So 1 Corinthians chapter 6, I'm going to read verses 1 through 11. And then we'll just look at some uh, applications from... Uh, this section. Does any one of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? If the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more matters of this life? So if you have law courts dealing with matters of this life, do you appoint them as judges who are of no account in the church? I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not among you one wise man who will be able to decide between his brethren, but brother goes to law with brother, and that before unbelievers? Actually, then, it is already a defeat for you that you have lawsuits with one another. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? On the contrary, you yourselves wrong and defraud. You do this even to your brethren. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? 
Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God. This section is just, it's a total mess. The Corinthian church had so many problems. There were so many things wrong in the church. And one of the shocking things that was going on is, as we read, these Christians were even taking each other to court over discrepancies or disputes or debts. And they weren't settling these things among themselves in any way that reflects the grace that ends the section in verse 11. So one of the things about forgiveness that I think is so important to be reminded of, forgiveness is the most fundamental application of our faith. There is nothing more fundamental than forgiveness in our faith. But at the same time, it is the easiest thing to overlook in the opportunities that there are to apply it. And not even easy to overlook, but easy to overlook the extent that it's to be taken in its applications. And it's easy to overlook how much further it can be taken than maybe we've taken it already in resolving things. So if you look at verse 7 and 8, so Paul established that, you know, it's already a shame that you're going before unbelievers and their courts to settle things that you could just settle among yourselves isn't there a wise man who can just settle these things among, among the brethren? But in verse 7 and 8, Paul goes further. That really what should happen is why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? Applying forgiveness goes far beyond what seems reasonable, what seems beneficial, or what even seems wise. What Jesus did on the cross ought to radically recalibrate not our expectations of what others ought to do, but the expectations of what I ought to do to pursue the release of debts and reconciliation and restored relationships with brethren. Paul's advice in verse 7 and 8, I read that as something that he intends to be shocking and humiliating when it's read before the church that this hasn't even crossed your mind, that this is already a loss, that it's escalated this far. Why can't you just let yourself be wronged on the matter and let that be the end of it? That is not the wisdom of the world. That is the wisdom of God. And so when we're talking about God's forgiveness, we're talking about something so radical that it's just, it's not going to make sense in its application unless we respect and revere the forgiveness that God has shown us. And forgiveness involves being willingly wronged and defrauded. And again, without the basis of the cross, that just, it sounds ridiculous. But just like kindness involves being wronged and suffering injustice, forgiveness in the same way, it will involve being willfully wronged. And so forgiveness isn't about the equality of you did this to me, now you owe me this. Again, Paul's advice to the Corinthians is the greatest thing of all would be to just take the loss yourself. And think about verse 11. I think this is how the, the context connects together. 
The point of what he's doing is not just reminding them generally of what God has done, but reminding them God has forgiven you in the most astonishing way. God pursued reconciliation with you. God had taken wrongs that you've done against him and has not expected you to repay the debt. But you've been washed and sanctified and justified, not by anything you've done, but it's been in the name of of Jesus Christ and the Spirit of God. And so the reminder of what God has done with the Corinthians was to motivate them to apply the radical expectation of God's forgiveness toward each other. And so lastly, forgiveness then seeks to build and to keep the fellowship that comes through Jesus at any personal cost. The idea is in verse 11, Jesus died to cleanse us, to justify us, to release us from debt, and to put us in a sanctified and holy relationship with God. And what forgiveness seeks to do is it seeks to put away every obstacle that can exist in relationships that we have with one another, but then it initiates and, per- and pursues the things that build that fellowship and strengthen it. And so an invitation in the lesson is just like a tender heart reflects and examines. If there's anything that you see in your relationship with any of the brethren here, or maybe a relationship that you've neglected in the past, where you see that forgiveness has not taken its proper length of application, a tender heart will look back and will honestly reflect. It'll measure out God's judgment on the matter, and it'll be moved to change. So if you're here this morning, I would urge you to have a tender heart moved to change. We need to be a people exemplifying the forgiveness of God. And like the Corinthians, it may be that we struggle in applying these things, that we need to help each other in applying these things but we still must strive to be the people that God has called us to be and to walk worthy of our calling. If there's anything that we can do for you this morning, if there's anything that we can help you to make right, if there's any encouragement that we can give you to make anything right or to take action, we would love to do that and we would love to assist you in any way that we can as we stand and sing our invitation song.